Hello, um, good afternoon. Um, this is um, a CBRL webinar um, that you're joining on the politics of water scarcity in the Levant. Um, my name is uh, Dr. Carol Palmer and I'm the director of CBRL. And um, it's my pleasure to, um, to be hosting and to be the person giving the introduction and also the chair for today. I'm just uh, talking and also allowing people um, to, to come in to, to, enter these, to the, enter the Zoom room as well. Um, it is, uh, we have three speakers. This is a, um, a panel webinar today. Uh, Dr. Hussam Hussain, Dr. Martin Kurlitz, and Dr. Majd Al Nabar. Um, who will be giving presentations that are about 15 minutes each. And then we will have time for questions um, later at the end. We're due to, um, to end um, at around, in one and a half hours. The total length of the webinar is uh, one and a half hours. Um, I just want to first say something about uh, CBRL and uh, then follow up with some house rules, as well as um, starting to introduce our speakers. So uh, CBRL, Council for British Research in the Levant, for those who, who don't know us, is one of the British International Research Institutes associated with the British Academy through which we receive um, uh, uh, our, most of our funding. Um, but we also depend on projects and activities that we do, and also our members, who um, some of whom I know are joining us today. I'm based in Amman, uh, Jordan, where we have an institute. Um, we also have another institute in, um, in East Jerusalem, plus a base at the British Academy as well. Uh, so today's um, webinar, is uh, it takes the normal format of a, of a webinar. So we invite you to um, ask your questions in the Q&A, um, which you'll find on the bottom of your screens. Um, we also invite you, if you'd like to um, identify yourself, um, to, um, to uh, put your name and where you're coming from in the chat, because one of the formats of the webinar is, um, although the panelists can see who you are, um, fellow attendees uh, can't as well. We will also in the chat be adding some um, information um, about uh, CBRL and various publications um, as, we, as we go along too, as we're talking um, today. Today's webinar is uh, particularly topical um, in view of the COP 26 conference, the UN Climate Change Conference that's taking place on the 31st of October to the 12th of November uh, this year in Glasgow. And, um, and so it's very much with that in mind that we've put this panel together and we're really looking forward to um, both hearing what our speakers have to say and also um, to your questions as well. How we're going to run it is um, the speakers will speak in turn, 
And then we're going to do the question and answer section at the end. But please, if a question occurs to you as we're talking, please do, um, do put it in the, in the Q&A. I should say that we are uh, both recording this webinar today and also um, it's going out live on the CBRL Facebook page as well. So the, the background uh, to this webinar is that the Middle East is one of the most water scarce, re scarce regions in, in the world, but there's a lot more to the story of how water is used than lack of rainfall, lack of precipitation. And we brought three um, experts in the field here today to discuss this from their own particular perspectives. Um, Dr. Hassam Hussein, who will be our first speaker, um, will talk about discourses around um, water scarcity in the case of Jordan. And he is a departmental lecturer in international relations at the University of Oxford. Um, and he has his PhD from the University of East Anglia with a thesis focusing on the topic that he's going to be talking to us uh, today. Um, Dr. Martin Kurlitz is um, an adjunct assistant professor to the food security program at the American University of Beirut. He acted as uh, director of the program until 2020 and continues to, to teach there. And he will discuss uh, the necessity to adopt holistic approaches to the water problem, considering all water and food sectors together. And finally, we will invite uh, Dr. Majd al Naba uh, to give the final um, talk on the implications of water scarcity on vulnerable communities. Um, who's going to highlight and discuss the links between water shocks, tension, conflict, and um, migrations. Uh, she is the team leader and a senior researcher in the sustainable development pillar at the West Asia North Africa Institute based in Jordan, but her research covers the whole of the Middle East and, um, and North Africa. And she takes a very multidisciplinary uh, view across the WANA region, um, encompassing many fields in her studies, climate change, gender, water, um, and she received her Doctor of Philosophy um, from, uh, from the University of Wageningen in the Netherlands and Super Agro France. And she's also um, speaking to us based on her experience, as well as her, her her PhD as well, her Doctor of Philosophy. I should say, I think I didn't mention that Martin um, has his PhD, I think from King's College London. And I just wanted to mention today um, briefly, the, the geographer, the late um, Tony Allen, who died in April this year, who was very influential um, in um, the field that we're talking in, especially the concept of uh, virtual water. And I found at CBRL that many of the researchers who come to us to speak on this topic are, are very often either a student of, it, of his, as Martin 
uh, as Martin was, um, or they are a student of a student of his, as our first speaker, Hussam Hussein is. And I think with that, I will um, give Hussam the floor to start talking to us on his topic. Welcome, Hussam, thank you very much. And the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Carol, for this kind invitation. It's a pleasure to be here today to share uh, some of my research on the issue of water scarcity, especially in the case of Jordan. Um, so as a general background, uh, the, the, the focus of this presentation is on Jordan uh, and on water scarcity. 40% uh, of water resources uh, in uh, Jordan are of transboundary. Uh, nature, groundwater resources are over-extracted over and over-exploited, and the level of groundwater resources is rapidly decreasing, both in terms of quality and also of quantity. Uh, when we look at the lower part of the Jordan River, uh, the, the flow of the river has decreased uh, enormously uh, compared to how it was about 100 years ago. Uh, by about 97%, uh, and this also is impacting the biodiversity, which uh, has decreased uh, by about 50%. Uh, this is negatively impacting also uh, the Dead Sea, which we know is decreasing uh, uh, in terms of surface by more than one third uh, of its surface, but also in terms of uh, the quantity and, and the height of the, of the Dead Sea, which is decreasing by uh, one meter per year, more or less. And in this context, I found that discourses and narratives and the way we understand the problem is really uh, important in shaping how we frame the solutions and the policy solutions. Uh, when we look at the, uh, at the country, here we, can, we have a map of uh, Jordan, uh, we can also see that transboundary resources are very important. I mentioned that 40% of the surface water resources are, uh, of, uh, sorry, of the water resources in the country are shared. Uh, agreements, therefore, and water diplomacy is important. And here we have uh, three years which represent the uh, three agreements that Jordan signed with neighboring countries on the management uh, and the governance of transboundary uh, water resources. In particular, the 1987 is um, the year of the latest agreement between Jordan and Syria on the Yarmouk River. Uh, in 1994, as part of the peace treaty, uh, the agreement between Jordan and Israel, or also on the on the uh, low on the lower part of the Jordan River, and finally the 2015 agreement between Jordan and Saudi Arabia on the uh, non-renewable groundwater resources of the DC Aquifer. Uh, when it comes to uh, the water, uh, water resources and the water supply uh, used in Jordan. Uh, here we can see that 54% of the uh, water supply comes from groundwater resources, 33% uh, from surface water resources, and 13%, and it's increasing, uh, from treated wastewater. So we can see that while uh, most of the water, I mean, uh, an important percentage of uh, uh, water resources in Jordan is uh, uh, mainly surface, uh, of surface water resources, the most of the water resources that are being used are instead of groundwater resources. And uh, I mean, this is for uh, different reasons. In particular, as I mentioned earlier, is that uh, the surface water resources, the main rivers in Jordan are the Yarmouk River and the Jordan River, and they're both uh, shared with neighboring countries. 
and therefore it results easier uh, for Jordan to use uh, groundwater resources, especially those groundwater resources and aquifers that are all within uh, Jordan, and therefore the no need to uh, negotiate uh, with uh, uh, neighboring countries. Um, in, here, in this slide, we can see uh, the current water uh, uses of the water resources. And in particular, uh, these data are from 2017, governmental data, and shows that uh, an important percentage, of about 52%, are used for domestic uh, water uh, demand. And uh, this has been increasing in the past, uh, uh, also due to an increased population, as we will see in the next slide. However, we can also see that 45% is used for agriculture and a small percentage, only 3%, uh, for industry. Um, and as I was mentioning earlier, we can see here uh, that 59% is surface water, while 27% is groundwater and 14% treated wastewater in 2017. So as I was mentioning, it's easier, while most of the water sources are surface water sources, it's easier to use uh, groundwater resources as uh, so earlier, uh, but important. I think it's important to see how the role of the agriculture uh, in Jordan, and we can see that 90% of the food consumed in the country is uh, imported. Uh, so that's that's something important to bear in mind. Uh, but when we see at the role, when we look at the role of agriculture in the country, we can see that only 3% of the uh, of the GDP comes from agriculture, and this. Obviously, it depends also on, uh, on to what extent we consider, I mean, what, what is agriculture when we look at it as a sector? If we also include the, all the supplies chain, then it would probably increase to 15 or 20%. Um, and this also links to the labor force by sector, but official data would say that it's about 3%. So uh, it's important to consider, I mean, and that's the approach that I, that I use to look at uh, discourses. So how the, the problem is framed in order to understand uh, how to solve it. And so it's important to consider how the discourses of water scarcity are framed and frame the issue of uh, water scarcity in order to understand, uh, firstly, the political economy behind discourses, but also uh, how policies are uh, come to be and are formed uh, and are shaped. So that, this is why I decided to look at uh, the discourse of water scarcity, especially in the, in the case of Jordan, because uh, Jordan is said to be the second most water scarce country in the world. So Jordan is, uh, I mean, has an, indeed a problem of water scarcity. Uh, I mean, now it's the second, used to be the fourth. I mean, it really depends on also which indicators and the measures we use, but it's, I mean, uh, objectively it seems to be an important issue for, for the country. And so what I did was to try to unpack and to try to understand how uh, this discourse of water scarcity is, uh, is formed and also the different uh, nuances within the discourse, whether there are different uh, sub-discourses or different diverging views on the framing of this discourse of water scarcity. And therefore, to try to, to, try to understand how people uh, and policymakers understand the issue of water scarcity, why there is water scarcity in the country, what are the causes behind it, in order to understand uh, the policies that are being implemented uh, or suggested, or what should maybe be the uh, best uh, policies to solve the issue of water scarcity. And therefore, really, the, the, the link between the discourses and the policies, which 
uh, appeared to be quite relevant uh, during my, my research. And therefore, the data collection really focused on analyzing uh, the written documentation on the reports uh, from the relevant ministries, in particular, the Ministry of Water and Irrigation, but also other governmental institutions, as well as uh, the writings from academics, uh, donors, agencies, international organizations on the issue of water scarcity. And then I followed up with semi-structured interviews to those that developed and wrote these um, reports to really understand, uh, and also the policymakers to really understand how uh, and why they decided to uh, frame the issue in certain ways and to uh, adopt uh, certain solutions. Therefore, the target of my uh, research was mainly, uh, for the interviews, was mainly the donors' agencies, the members of the parliament, uh, as well as uh, uh, media, uh, newspapers, uh, journalists, academics, uh, both uh, based in Jordan and abroad, governmental officials, diplomats, NGOs, uh, students, farmers, and uh, different users of water resources. And what I found was that there is indeed a consensus on the issue of water scarcity, so everyone uh, I mean, almost everyone, all the people I spoke to agreed that there is an issue of water scarcity and that Jordan is experiencing uh, this uh, water uh, shortage. However, they uh, disagreed on the emphasis uh, of uh, the different reasons behind the uh, water scarcity. And so here we can see two, uh, two narratives that compose uh, this uh, uh, discourse of water scarcity. On the one hand, we have uh, uh, a dominant, I would say, which is bigger, the one on the left, uh, uh, narrative or sub-discourse of water scarcity that basically argues that there is water scarcity uh, due to limited water resources, and uh, we need to increase the water resources in order to match the growing demand. And the causes behind these uh, limited water resources are mainly the population growth, uh, immigration and refugees. And the, the argument that was done, made was basically that uh, in 1946, uh, when Jordan became independent, Jordan had a population of about 500,000 uh, people. And uh, about 12 years ago, before the Syrian crisis, we had a population of seven to eight millions, and now a population of about 10 to 11. So there has indeed been an increase of the population, which also led to an increase in the demand. Uh, and then another reason, the one on the left, is that, uh, the unfair sharing with neighboring countries. So a perception that the uh, sharing of the Yarmouk River and of the lower, I mean, of the Jordan River water resources is quite unfair for different reasons. Then, I mean, it also differs according to who I spoke with, certain, emphasize, certain people emphasized uh, the issues on the Yarmouk and the relations with uh, Syria, uh, while others emphasize the relations with Israel, also depending to some extent on to what extent they were close to uh, the Yarmouk or to the Jordan River. Um, and then other two reasons emphasize, one, the climate change uh, that is increasing and is seen as an additional pressure to water resources and to water scarcity in different, in different ways, uh, for instance, uh, in the uh, precipitation patterns, uh, but also in the recharge of the groundwater resources. And then also some other people emphasize the uh, aridity and the low precipitation in the country by saying that, I mean, it's quite normal and natural to have water scarcity because Jordan is uh, mainly a desertic country based in the Middle East, which is quite of a, uh, a desertic region. So it's quite normal to have a water scarcity. 
And therefore here we can see a pattern of, uh, of reasons that drive and indicate that uh, we have water scarcity due to external issues and reasons uh, external to the country, external to the government uh, in terms of responsibility. So uh, either due to the nature and the environment, so climate change or low precipitation, or due to neighboring countries from where we have people and immigrants and refugees that come to Jordan or that neighboring countries that do not respect or that uh, do not allow Jordan to have the fair share of water on the neighboring, uh, on the shared water resources. And therefore, really the idea behind uh, this framing is that uh, Jordan has limited water resources for these reasons and we need to increase the supply. And therefore this, the solutions that are suggested as we will see in the next slide are mainly on increasing the supply. We need to increase the supply because uh, we, we have an increasing demand and we, there's nothing we can do. We can just increase the supply. The other, and, and quite unsurprisingly, the people that emphasize these reasons are usually people that are uh, either uh, working in governmental institutions or uh, newspapers and mass media, they are quite aligned with the mainstream uh, positions of uh, the uh, of the government. Uh, on the other hand, we have uh, another sub discourse or narrative that indicates that we have water scarcity, but this is seen mainly due to mismanagement and therefore uh, we need to better manage the water resources. So by managing better the water resources, we could uh, decrease the water scarcity and then in case we can look at water uh, supply increasing, but firstly we should better manage the water resources. And they indicate uh, and point mainly to three reasons. Uh, one is the non-revenue water uh, due to leakages and physical losses. So um, yeah, pipelines are old uh, uh, and we need to really uh, rehabilitate the network. Uh, uh, the other one is uh, pointing to the legal wells and the legal connections uh, by saying that uh, we need to, so like there's a percentage about 30, 40% of non-revenue water that includes both leakages, physical losses and illegal wells and illegal uses. And really we need to uh, close illegal wells and stop the legal uses. Uh, uh, yeah, and to, 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 to decrease the, the mismanagement. Finally, we have the unsustainable, so-called unsustainable agricultural water use that points to different, in different directions. So but, uh, on the one hand, it points to the type of crops. So having, for instance, tomatoes or bananas, in certain parts of the country is seen as uh, not very wise from a water perspective, especially if then these products are then exported to other countries. So as uh, Dr. Caro was mentioning earlier, uh, professor, late Professor Tony Allen um, emphasized the, the importance of looking at virtual water, which is the amount of water embedded in any uh, good or service. And uh, uh, he said that water scarce countries <clears throat> should try to uh, import uh, amount of water, uh, virtual water. So uh, import basically uh, agricultural products that are very water rich and try not to export agricultural products, but rather try to export services or industrial product, product that uses uh, little water. Or for instance, uh, be wise on choosing what, to, uh, what to, to crop, for instance, dates and certain type of dates that we have also here uh, in uh, the Jordan Valley uh, are probably more appropriate than exporting uh, watermelons or tomatoes. Um, 
and the other one is the tariffing system. So uh, trying to be wise in the type of uh, trying to decrease uh, mismanagement and uh, water uh, demand by increasing uh, water uh, tariffs, especially for the agricultural sector. But I'm sure probably Martin, Dr. Martin Collett will touch more on uh, food security and uh, water and food. Um, so looking at, and just to uh, finish on this, uh, on the water mismanagement uh, sub-discourse, uh, the, the people that emphasized uh, these three reasons are mainly uh, coming from the donors community or academics mainly based abroad uh, or international organizations uh, or some NGOs. Uh, and we can see that the blame in this case is mainly on either the users in Jordan or uh, on the ministers of water or governmental uh, or minister of agriculture. So like more on, uh, on persons and stakeholders within the country. However, it's also important to, 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 to remark that they all acknowledge also the other uh, causes. So it's not that those people who neglect and deny the four reasons that we mentioned for the water insufficiency narrative. They would just say emphasize more the water mismanagement narrative and also the other way around. So also people in the government would acknowledge these three reasons, but they would emphasize uh, the four in reasons that I mentioned earlier. So the solutions uh, on the supply side uh, are uh, so increasing supply, those that have been mentioned and supported and strongly uh, emphasized in the, for instance, national water strategy uh, are the DC canal. Uh, so using groundwater uh, from the DC aquifer, which is non-renewable and is shared with uh, Saudi Arabia, which has been, implement, impl has been uh, implemented about five, six years ago and is now uh, operational. Uh, but it's pumping water from a non-renewable water uh, resource uh, uh, 300 kilometers uh, north to Amman and the northern part of the country. So it's also very energy intense. And then the Red Dead Canal, which uh, has shaped uh, form uh, in many times uh, in the past 20 years, but currently is uh, uh, mainly, and the project is mainly a national water career that would uh, desalinized water in Aqaba in uh, Jordan and pumping this desalinized water north to the northern part of the country where most of the population resides and most of the water needs are and then building dams however like uh, yeah I mean I think most I mean there's, I'm not sure there's any place left for new dams and then increasing the treated wastewater which is something that is being supported by all stakeholders and all these projects are being are going ahead uh, the Red Dead Canal is going ahead as mentioned in a, in a new shape the DC is operational and treated wastewater also is uh, increasing and increasing. On the demand side, instead, uh, the tariffing system, especially for removing subsidies for the agricultural sector, uh, is uh, as well as regulations on the type of crops, is something that has been tried uh, at times, uh, but usually has not been uh, approved uh, and did not manage to pass all the stages and steps in the legislative. Uh, process in the country uh, for different reasons, uh, but mainly for the oppositions and lo the lobbying of uh, large farmers. Um, and uh, when it comes to co better conserving water and therefore trying to change the behavior of people, this is something that is being done quite successfully in the country and is being supported by all stakeholders. Uh, for instance, through uh, including uh, mentions of water on, on the importance of conserving water in textbooks, uh, in schools, uh, or also uh, uh, through religious leaders. 
So I think my time is running slowly uh, out, but uh, I think uh, we can conclude this with slide on really emphasizing the need to holistically try to understand the problem before bringing different stakeholders together to try to look at the problem together from different perspectives. So it's important uh, uh, to, to, to have, for instance, the Minister of Water together with the, one of the agriculture and energy discussing uh, and trying to find uh, uh, solutions together and also ensuring that the, the strategies, national water and the national strategies are really coherent in the different sectors. The need for interdisciplinary research uh, uh, to try to solve these complex problems. And therefore, obviously, uh, we cannot just rely on political scientists or on uh, hydrogeologists, but we really need to bring uh, all the disciplines and geographers together to work together. Uh, also, both in terms of disciplines, but also uh, nexus. And that's probably something that the other two speakers will also touch on. Therefore, for instance, the water and water energy food nexus, but also looking at water as uh, how it links with other sectors and issues. And, then, and finally, the need to contextualize the water issues within the political economy and therefore really trying to understand the different interests and the different positions uh, of the different uh, stakeholders uh, and users of the water sectors. Thank you very much and I'm happy to answer questions at the very end. And um, thank you very much for Sam and I'm Martin is with us and uh, will be our next speaker. Lovely. Thank you very much for yeah. inviting me to this very important uh, session. Uh, it's been already mentioned several times that uh, we lost a giant earlier this year, um, Tony Allen, and uh, we're very saddened about it. However, if I'm not mistaken, I can see in the list of attendees three people who work with uh, Tony. One is Raya Stefan, who is the editor of Water International. I'd say one of the key journals, academic journals in water management. Then we have Eli Al-Hajj, who did his PhD with Tony after a long career in banking. I still think that his uh, PhD had the best title ever, was on Saudi Arabia, and it's called uh, Camels Don't Fly, Deserts Don't Bloom. So I think this uh, you know, nicely captures the whole issue. And then we have, uh, I'd say, the legitimate successor, intellectual successor of Tony Allen, Chris Perry, former World Bank, and now a very influential, independent, however, voice on uh, water management, in particular water accounting. So welcome, everyone. I don't know the others, so yeah, it's my fault. I'm very sorry, but I'd like to, to welcome these three uh, people in particular. Um, my presentation is, well, more about food security, uh, but I'm going to turn to water later. Um, and I called it food security threats to turbulent regions. Uh, one reason is actually one of the final conversations I had with Tony Allen was that he concluded that water is just a subsector or subfield in food systems research. And I tend to agree because it is, we're very much about food security. Let me uh, get started. I don't know. Here we go. Um, why is food security a make it or break it issue in the in the Arab world? Well, first of all, the Arab world is one of the most food import dependent regions in the world. Up to 80% of the food is imported. Uh, in certain countries such as the Gulf, uh, such as the Gulf, it's nearing about uh, 100%. Um, 
And at the same time, domestic production is limited to because of water scarcity and land degradation. Um, food import dependency may pose development challenges to the region. Uh, rural areas will be especially affected by economic decline. This is already visible, and this is only going to continue in the next few years and decades. And one of the consequences also uh, in relation or as a result of water scarcity is more urbanization. What are the specific key problems and threats we face? First of all, and I think we always need to start with this issue because it's so essential, demographic change. I shall explain later what I mean by this. Uh, also, food production cannot meet consumption. Food import dependency means reliance on the global market. It's not always an easy global market. I think those of you who are uh, joining us from the United Kingdom know what it means to be dependent on trade. Like every other country, it can have uh, or it can pose problems. The region is already facing nutrition challenges, not enough proteins available to consumers, and environmental challenges are epic. Uh, rural water, rural areas are prone to poverty as well. Uh, and at the moment, only irrigation provides income, yet water scarcity and land degradation are key bottlenecks. Let me underpin this with uh, a few slides, because I think this is uh, important. Uh, we've done this um, study together with my colleague Musa McKee and Mark Mulligan from King's College in London uh, for the Manara Research Project, which was looking at uh, uh, the Middle East and North Africa and the geopolitics of this region. And we looked at, first of all, at demography, you know, what is going to happen there, what's the situation. So, and according to the UN numbers, uh, we can see that by 2100, this region will have double the population compared to Europe. Uh, and if we think back to the 1950s, uh, it was uh, very much a mismatch. Europe had almost five times, five times as many uh, inhabitants as the region. And the big question is, what does it going to lead to? Does it mean that the region will only see poverty or is it also perhaps also a source of power uh, that this region is growing and Europe is stagnating. Um, actually, as we speak, we see uh, the break even between Europe and uh, the MENA region uh, with about 600 million people living in both uh, uh, areas or both regions of this world. So the region is growing as a takeaway message and it's growing fast. And in fact, three countries stand out. One is Egypt. From today, roughly 100 million people it will increase to 200 million people by the end of the century. Then we have uh, Sudan from about 40 million people to 140 million people by the end of the century. And Iraq from about 60 million people to 110, 120 by the end of this century. And other countries, including the, the riparian countries in the Jordan River Basin are also growing. Uh, by 2100, Israel, Palestine, and Jordan will have about 40, 41 million people, uh, which is seriously going to pose questions to the sustainability of uh, this part of the world. When we look at a driving factor for agricultural suitability, we of course need to look at agricultural suitability. Um, 
there is, uh, you know, some areas have some agricultural suitability and the more green it gets, the, or the more red it gets, the more uh, suitability there is. Most of the areas in the region have a moderate, if uh, little, suitability. I always like to point people at one country which is often overlooked. It's Mauritania. Mauritania has a potential. And of course, uh, in the Levant, there is a potential and Turkey has a potential provider of agricultural commodities to the region. Um, having said this, of course, in North Africa, there's also potential in the Maghreb, but urbanization is literally eating away also agricultural land because cities are expanding in areas where there could be agricultural production. Then of course, water constraints across the region, we uh, see very significant water constraints. Again, everything where you see a dark blue, there's um, heavy water constraints. The more red it gets, the more water there is. And again, there is little water available, at least from natural rainfall. Um, there are, as we know, rivers, uh, such as the Jordan River Basin, such as the Euphrates and Tigris River system, and the Nile Basin. Uh, but as we know, they are highly contested. I shall later uh, talk about the Euphrates and Tigris briefly, because I think it deserves more attention. As you can also see here, the Fertile Crescent is uh, very well depicted, uh, and it is perhaps one of the you know, last opportunities for the region. Um, land degradation, according to Arab Spatial, we have heavy land degradation across the, the region. Um, wherever there's irrigation, the more land degradation we can see. The Nile Delta stands out, but also agricultural regions in the new lands of Egypt. And uh, again, the Euphrates and Tigris, these are the areas which are heavily degraded uh, in terms of saline soils. More than 75% of the soils are saline in those parts of the of the region. Um, and as I mentioned before, we have this tendency that people move to cities. I would say the region is becoming another Lebanon. Um, when we look at Lebanon, we can see that the urban area has uh, more or less increased from, <clears throat> uh, from north of Junia to all the way down nearly to Saida. The coast is one metropolitan area, uh, although 30, 40 years ago, these were some you know, still villages. Uh, but this trend is not just uh, a phenomenon in Lebanon, it's uh, happening everywhere. For those of you who are from uh, Jordan, they will know that uh, Jordan is also heavily urbanizing. And by 2050, in between 85% uh, of people in the major countries to 90% will live in cities. and. That's of course another worrying trend across the region. It's uh, slightly better because of certain countries such as Mauritania and Somalia, which is also included here. We see about 70% of people then living in cities, but it's a major challenge because cities require different food systems and cities you know, also uh, face potential challenges internally because people also need work. And the Arab city may at some point become a hotspot also for um, tensions or clashes over work, over opportunities. Um, another consequence uh, of uh, food insecurity is food production and consumption. What we can see here is total uh, cereal consumption doesn't meet demand. Uh, uh, it's, the gap is widening. 
and it's also particularly widening in terms of food and animal imports. Uh, it's, it's especially placing a heavy burden on uh, budgets. Uh, so therefore, uh, in this region, this gap is widening. I deliberately didn't include any data from the past 18 months because I think the picture is quite distorted at the moment due to the pandemic. Uh, but we've worked with uh, UNESCO on this issue and right now it doesn't really look good, but uh, hopefully there will be uh, some uh, or a decrease in, in uh, or an increase in, in production over the next few uh, months again, uh, which were, you know, those agricultural production was also impaired by uh, the pandemic. So therefore it's a distorted picture at the moment. Um, and if we look at the different crops and the different commodities, cereals are uh, the problem uh, with roots and tubers or potatoes and so on. The region is uh, actually quite self-sufficient. Um, surely those of you who live in the region always uh, hear about uh, reports that Egyptian potatoes are imported to various countries, although people say, why don't we consume our own potatoes? Uh, so Egypt is actually a very important provider. About 30% of uh, agricultural production is due to Egypt alone. It's a you know, very crucial agricultural powerhouse in, in the region. Uh, meat, we see a steady, uh, a steady gap evolving uh, because it's uh, difficult to produce meat and uh, also milk um, is uh, facing a similar not as dramatic picture the gap is much smaller but nevertheless uh, countries are in need of uh, of further imports and therefore also uh, they need to provide food from the world market and over the last 15 years or so 13 years uh, we've seen uh, two major events which uh, happened in 2007-08 and 2010-11. Those were the food price spikes. And this uh, slide very well captures uh, what happens when there are food price spikes, when food prices go up. Uh, during the first one, we saw some uh, political unrest in the region. And then during the second food price spike, there were even more uh, actually quite uh, a number of uh, political events. I'm not saying food security or food insecurity is responsible for the Arab Spring, but I would surely say it contributed to the Arab Spring too. Um, yeah, political unrest because people were unhappy with uh, what was delivered and provided by uh, governments. Um, having said this, over the last 18 months, despite uh, heavy increases in uh, food prices globally. We haven't seen the, the political unrest. So uh, countries have apparently learned from uh, the food price spikes of 2007 or 8 and 2010, 11. Another important issue is undernutrition. The region doesn't produce sufficient protein to its population. Uh, it's improving compared to the 19, or early 1990s. But still, uh, there is a lack of protein, uh, in particular in the poorer countries. Um, and that also then means that it impacts, for example, uh, children and may lead to uh, stunting uh, and other factors which uh, affect children when they are undernourished uh, in, their, uh, in, 
their early years of life. Um, let's turn, return to water because uh, I find this, this slide extremely telling and important. Uh, many in the region discuss the option of uh, uh, rain-fed agriculture, perhaps that's the way out, you know, how to uh, improve rain-fed agriculture. But if we look at the region and at the issue around poverty, then we can actually see that only irrigated agriculture provides uh, uh, important livelihoods uh, because those who irrigate produce mainly fruits, vegetables, and cash crops. Uh, and they do this on 2% of the entire land area in the region. And it's about 17% of the agricultural population. If we look at uh, other systems, so for example, uh, highland mixed systems, where you know, some uh, pastoralists often produce uh, cereals, legumes, sheep, or, or, farm, uh, sorry, or sheep, uh, poverty is extensive. And the same applies to dryland mixed system and, and also pastoral system. And those farmers only get out of poverty if they have off-farm income. So basically, if they do another job. Uh, and that's a major concern. We have studies in Beirut on uh, the northern Bacar, uh, where we interviewed farmers. And the farmers told us the only reason why they're still in agriculture is because they need to repay the debt they accumulated with banks. Other than this, it doesn't really make sense from a financial perspective. And also water is a key concern. So if you don't have access to irrigation, uh, one can say you're screwed or you have another job or you do whatever ecotourism, that's of course also an option, but the actual business of producing food in the region is not very profitable. And that's a major concern, of course. Um, global implications, you know, we can always talk about this region just you know, from a regional perspective, but I'd say, uh, of course, the Arab region has a um, global impact. First of all, if food security is not addressed, then uh, food insecurity may lead to further political instability. Hungry people may adopt radical solutions. Uh, and poor nutrition leads to development challenges, rates of stunting and wasting, as I mentioned. Life chances of Arab children may be impaired from an early age. And the region which is most directly affected is Europe because it is uh, the Arab world is our closest neighbor and we should pay attention to the Arab region. However, is it all doom and gloom? Uh, and I would argue not necessarily. And I would like to use the Euphrates and Tigris basin as an example. Uh, the Euphrates and Tigris has found increasing media attention due to severe water scarcity over the last few years water scarcity in the, in the downstream area around Basra, uh, where the Shia Arabs live. Um, and the reason for it uh, is, of course, in part the GAP project, Turkey's dam building, uh, because the vast majority of water is captured by Turkey, because in the basin, 90% of water comes from Turkey and 10% from Syria. Uh, and those dams, which are not just in Turkey, but also in Iraq and Syria, have literally dried up the downstream uh, river basin. And one issue one should be concerned about is ethnic tensions uh, because they may escalate further without new approaches. And this is something I would like to end on. Uh, but before that, I'd 
quickly like to show you what I, what I mean. On the left-hand side, you can see the different dams which were built, uh, in particular in Turkey. The latest one is the Elishu Dam in the, in the Kurdish areas in Turkey. Uh, and on the right-hand side, we see the ethnic diversity of, uh, of Iraq. And in Iraq, in the downstream areas, we've got the Shia Arabs, and in the north, we've got the Kurds, and in the west, we've got the, the Sunni Arabs. And if we think about this region at large, you know, we will surely all know that uh, the increasing tensions between Shia Arabs and or, or Shia Islam and Sunni Islam is a, is a major concern for the future of our entire globe, because uh, if something escalates in the region, it could have uh, very negative effects on the rest of the world. So Iraq could be one of the countries which may be first affected and water could in fact inflame further ethnic divisions. Um, however, what we did, uh, and I mentioned this project before, during the Minara research project is we uh, looked at a SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats for the Euphrates and Tigris Basin to understand whether it's all doom and gloom. And uh, when we look at the strength in, uh, in the Euphrates and Tigris Basin, we actually quickly realized there are quite good, there's quite good infrastructure. Then everything you see in green means accessibility. So we have, uh, well, people have access to the next market uh, within three hours, which is very important, especially if you work also in agriculture. Um, GDP is, to a lesser extent, uh, uh, a strength there, but there's an opportunity for nature-based tourism, so ecotourism, which is also heavily promoted by donors. And in the northern part of the basin, there's per capita availability, and more in the southern part, there's also per capita agricultural productivity. So there are also opportunities, also per capita agricultural productivities, as you can see, also uh, not bad in the northern part. Um, in terms of weaknesses, uh, there is uh, seasonality is one of the key weaknesses and also risk of natural hazards. And uh, here we have uh, also per capita agricultural scarcity, particularly in Syria and uh, in the northwestern part of, of Iraq. Um, in terms of opportunities, uh, natural capital security is a major opportunity. There is an agricultural potential uh, further uh, upstream in the Euphrates and Tigris. And climate change is not just posing problems, it also means increased rainfall for the southern part of, uh, of Iraq. Uh, and finally, there is this solar energy potential and there's some very little though wind energy potential. And finally, to uh, follow up on the SWOT analysis, uh, the threats are uh, in part population density, uh, border proximity, uh, climate change where there's less rainfall and of course governance uh, challenges. So, what we're trying to show with this SWOT analysis is that if we look at a basin such as Euphrates and Tigris, perhaps it's worthwhile thinking beyond, or outside the box, beyond current uh, paradigms on water. And I'd like to point this to you as my, my, my final message. 
should the region be a large-scale agricultural producer? Or should it not make use of its water resources for other purposes, other sectors? Um, especially the pandemic showed how uh, concentrated global supply chains are. You know, most of your ibuprofen, for example, is produced somewhere in East Asia. And when there's uh, a problem, for example, uh, with uh, trade routes, then, you know, we might run out of, uh, for example, pharmaceuticals, but also other key uh, commodities in our global supply chains. Should we not look at this region or should we not also perhaps use water scarcity as an opportunity to move outside uh, the agricultural sector, to industrialize instead of agriculturalize, to also be slightly relaxed about the world market because the world market is still strong. Russia is going to be the key provider of cereals uh, in the world uh, over the next few decades. And climate change will actually aid this. For those of you who would like to read more about it, just read the Financial Times. They write about it every four or six weeks that Russia is going to be the next big uh, provider of agricultural commodities. So my message is we need to move away from agriculture, from just food security, which is domestically achieved, but to look at other uh, opportunities, uh, such as uh, changing uh, the economies at large away from uh, their present state towards more industrialized uh, economies, and then perhaps also benefit uh, in Europe from a more uh, productive uh, Middle East and North Africa. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, um, Martin, and I'm going to move on swiftly to our final speaker. Thank you, um, Majd, if you would like to uh, give us your presentation. Thank you very much, Kalor, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I thank you for having me today. Carol, um, thank you for the introduction. As Carol mentioned today, I will uh, highlight the uh, linkages between climate change, water shocks, um, migration and conflicts in, uh, in one Amina region. Um, some of the information that I will be mentioning today is based on a background report uh, we prepared at WANA um, for the World Bank uh, to support their uh, recent uh, publication, Up um, and Flow, Volume 2. Um, but before starting with the presentation, just please allow me to introduce the, the institute that I work uh, for, WANA Institute. Uh, we are um, a policy think tank organization um, working located in Amman, Jordan, but we have a regional mandate in WANA region. We try to provide uh, research based on uh, evidence and uh, validated uh, opinion in uh, several um, uh, sector as human security, sustainable development, where we tackle the environmental sector, economic growth and um, social um, justice. We are operating under the chairmanship of His Royal Highness, Prince Al-Hassan bin Talal. So uh, as I mentioned today, I will uh, speak about the implication of water shocks environment community. Uh, we'll start by providing like um, a general overview about water situation um, in uh, MENA region, 
then uh, the effect of climate change in our region and how this climate change caused several water shocks will define this water shocks and then to uh, integrate these water shocks with uh, the interstate interstate migration uh, IDPs that happened um, inside the countries and the external migration uh, within the countries. And then uh, the linkage, if there is a link between um, these water shocks and the conflict uh, that happened, um, and that's still happening in uh, MENA region. So uh, the Middle East and North Africa region captured many of the issues surrounding water and migration. Um, it is very well known that water availability and accessibility uh, are essential factors to achieve any country's development. Um, our region is the most water scarce in the world with more than 60% of its population living with a very high stress um, area. The global water withdrawal have more than doubled since the 16 without any sign of slowing down. Worldwide, there are 17 countries that are suffering from extremely uh, high water stress based on water stress index. Um, uh, 12 out of the 17 are located in MENA region. And unfortunately, uh, five out of these 12 countries are located um, in the Levant area. Uh, regionally, Jordan is the most um, water stress countries based on water stress index, as uh, also my colleague, Dr. Hossam mentioned uh, in the first presentation. Uh, and it's followed by Libya and Algeria from the uh, North Africa. The availability and accessibility uh, of water resources are normally associated with population growth, with accelerated demand uh, that's already linked with the population growth, food insecurity, um, insufficient management of natural resources, socioeconomic fragmentation and political fragmentation, as well as um, the climate change. And I believe this might answer one of the questions in, in the box that was highlighted by uh, Dr. Stefan related, why we are not achieving any uh, acceleration toward water management. Uh, I believe this factor contributed directly to uh, that slow motion and uh, water resources management, not only in Jordan, but also um, the whole region. Um, the effect of climate change in the region has been noticed since the 18 uh, drought, earthquake floods and storms uh, occurred have been increased dramatically. It's predicted that deforestation rates will be increased by 4%, annual temperature will be increased by 2 to 6% uh, in the future, and crop yield will um, deteriorate and will be decreased based on the increase in the annual temperature. Um, natural disaster, uh, globally, it has doubled uh, since the 18, but in MENA region, it has tripled. Um, as I said, uh, drought and flash flood has occurred, uh, the, their requirement has been increased um, uh, dramatically. Now, it's, um, every year, we notice several uh, drought in, in the region, flash flood, uh, wildfires, frost events, um, etc. So, uh, Yanni, um, historically, the region uh, has also experienced a high level of interstate and interstate migration, um, and most recently increased in the level of forced displacement. Um, as example, in 2020, there are an estimated by of 7.2 million um, refugees and asylum seekers in the region of whom about 2.7 were hosted in MENA region and 12.4 uh, million internally displaced persons inside the same uh, country. 
the regional human mobility uh, um, or the human mobility in, in MENA region can be uh, divided, if I can uh, say it like this, in three main patterns. First, displacement caused by war, political unrest, food security, natural disaster, and climate change. Um, but also we have asylum seeker and uh, the third pattern is uh, labor migrant where a lot of um, uh, people that from uh, Jordan and Lebanon, for example, uh, migrate to Gulf in order to find a better job opportunity and better um, uh, socioeconomic um, uh, life. Today I will focus on the first displacement and the one that's related with the environmental challenge such as uh, water shocks. Uh, we defined uh, water shocks as the occasion that happened due to a climate change as a drought, flash flood, um, salinity, uh, wildfire, uh, frost pollutions, etc. and seawater intrusion in some countries as, uh, as in the Gulf countries. Um, so let me provide you with uh, some examples uh, of water shocks where did it occur and its effect on um, communities. Um, starting with, with um, Syria, uh, before March 2011, Syria has always been known as a food uh, self sufficient country when it's come to uh, food security. But since the beginning of the um, 18th century, uh, the flocculation of precipitation events have been noticed, and this was associated with frequent um, drought season between 2006 and um, 2010. The peak of uh, the drought season has happened between 2007 and uh, 2008. Um, the average precipitation has been decreased uh, to 50% uh, um, in north to uh, south Syria in Raqqa, there is Zor Hasake Homs. Rainfield agriculture has shifted to groundwater based agriculture. Accordingly, um, there were decrease in water table and deterioration and uh, water quality due to um, this kind of activity. Uh, so that results in agriculture failure. Accordingly, um, uh, 40,000 40, uh, to 60,000 families migrated uh, to other areas as Elpo and uh, Andara. Uh, moreover, um, the flash flood has occurred in 2018 and 19 in Al-Hol and uh, Arisha camp. And uh, this um, uh, flash flood um, led to three of around 72,000 um, individuals. Other story in, in Iraq, um, the frequent drought that happened in the Levant region, not only in Syria and Iraq, but also in other countries as Lebanon and, and Jordan. But in Iraq in 2007 and 2009, it uh, hit the northern area of Iraq, while in 2010 and 2011, it helped the South uh, Governorate as the Qar Misan al Qadisiyya. Uh, and accordingly, in Misan Governorate, um, there's rural to urban migration happens in the area due to this. Uh, water scarcity and uh, drought uh, condition. And it was also um, associated with poor water management and increase in salinity. Um, accordingly, 6,800 families were migrated due to several conditions, uh, including loss of crop and livestock um, mortality. In Yemen, uh, there's tropical storms happened in 2008 and 2010. It's led to 20,000 migrants and in Lebanon flash flood that happened in 2019 led to uh, 40, uh, the number is wrong in the, in the, in the, in the presentation, it's 41,000 um, IDPs. Uh, 
So the question that's just, uh, uh, or before the question, but who are the most affected? Who are the, the, the most vulnerable uh, towards climate change and the one that we need to increase their resilience towards climate change? From my opinion, um, they are small farmers because they are the one who depend in the agricultural sector. They are waiting to, to um, harvest their cultivation and sell it in the market. Uh, but due to uh, climate change or water shocks, uh, drought, um, frost uh, occasion, uh, a lot of the production uh, were destroyed and uh, farmers did not get benefit from that. And they uh, eventually uh, have to migrate in some areas um, internally between place to place to find um, other job opportunity. Uh, the poorest are the most vulnerable uh, to poor the climate change. They can't, uh, even if they want to adapt and to mitigate with the water shocks, they can't due to a financial uh, restriction. Uh, the less informative and knowledgeable, for sure, small household and the people who live near the sea, rangeland and uh, frost due to seawater intrusion and wildfire, etc. And also who live in the downstream of, of, uh, of the water stream because um, if floods happened, it will be from upstream to downstream. The acceleration of water flows will be increased uh, as much as we move to downstream, especially if there is a high slope. Um, so again, back to the question, is there a link between water shocks and human mobility? Uh, based on a survey that was conducted by the World Bank in 2010, more than 25% of the IDP in Iraq cited that water scarcity as the main reason is the main reason for displacement and also the main reason for preventing them to return back to their place of, of uh, origin. In a follow-up survey in 2019, the IOM in Iraq identified 21,000 IDPs from the Southern and Central Governorates who were displaced due to um, a drinking water issue, as I mentioned before, caused by high salinity and content in waterborne um, disease. Uh, but uh, talking about the Southern uh, Governorate, yes, we have uh, ongoing water challenges, but it's not only related to, to, to water um, accessibility or availability, but it's also linked to access to basic services, uh, safe drinking water, sanitation, uh, facilities, housing, energy, education, and uh, healthcare, and they consider that as a pull factor among the IDPs and the uh, southern governorates of um, Iraq. Um, in other countries uh, like Algeria, Egypt, Morocco, Syria, and Yemen, um, yani they, they, they said that there is a water-related factor that's not the primary driver on human mobility, uh, there's uh, other factors that um, accelerate uh, their mobility, such as job security and socioeconomic situation of the household. And they are more important factor comparing to the nature disaster or availability of water and food. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, all of these uh, um, um, centers that I'm providing, uh, answering that question, uh, it was uh, conducted uh, for a background paper for the uh, World Bank, uh, one of the uh, tools that we use, we interviewed key experts in the field of climate change, migration, and, um, the, and conflict. And thank you, Dr. Hassam, you were uh, participated in one of the interviews for that um, report. So uh, based on experts, uh, they agreed that water factor had affected migration in the region. But however, they also ranked other factors such as war, unemployment, and uh, corruption, 
has much more influence drive to migration comparing to um, water-related uh, issue. And when we ask them to rank these factors in terms of more of, of uh, most uncertainty uh, about their influence and their uh, connection with the migration, uh, the expert identified high temperature and high risks of uh, natural disaster as having the most uncertain, the most uncertain again, influence on migration. Linkage between uh, water shocks and uh, conflict. Did water shocks cause conflict or the opposite? Actually, it's the opposite. Conflict has caused significant damage uh, to water infrastructure, not only water infrastructure, but also energy um, infrastructure as well. Um, electricity, um, as this service has been uh, targeted in uh, all conflict uh, due to the pumping and uh, etc., but not uh, the opposite. Uh, there's a lot of scholars that studies that um, uh, the conflict that happened in Syria, and some try to find direct link between the conflict and uh, the drought that I mentioned that happened between 2006 to 2010, 2011. But unfortunately, there isn't like a clear evidence of that. And especially that um, the, the, the how we can call it the, the, the uh, evolution that happened in Syria it was created by uh, young educated um, uh, people not from uh, farmers. So back uh, when evaluating conflict drives and the uncertainty experts agreed that mistrust of government, external intervention, unemployment and corruption are all influence drivers. And across the expert climate-related water risk as a drought were deemed to have little or no influence on conflict uh, risk. So in conclusion, there are various interlinked factors stimulate displacement, human mobility, interstate, interstate migration in the region. Um, water shock are one of them, but we can't consider it as a direct one. Normally, it's associated with uh, economic, social, political, and um, stability uh, factor. Um, last but not least, how we can adapt and mitigate toward this water shocks and climate change. In my opinion, we need to uh, increase countries' resilience towards climate change through developing technology and tools to predict the effect of this climate change, increase the uh, preparedness level and adaptive capacity at state level and at a national level, at a regional level. Uh, and adopt disaster management and uh, risk reduction um, uh, approach. Uh, we also need um, what I mentioned is uh, at state level, but at individual level, at house level, at a community level, we need to increase the resilience of the most affected people, the most vulnerable people, by providing them with the uh, required knowledge, capacity building, um, provide them information about the climate change, the science being climate change, how they can adapt, how they can mitigate, um, uh, how they can uh, cope more with, with the situation and um, survive with it. Uh, and to do that, we need that technology and we need to make this technology friendly to the user, to the end user, so they can um, use it and in a good way. Um, last but not least, since uh, I spoke out about farmers and agricultural system, uh, I believe subsidies and compensation should be should be um, uh, provided to the people who are affected uh, from uh, the climate shocks in order to uh, decrease the potential economic and social uh, tension. And um, thank you uh, very much. Back to you, Carol.
thank you. Thank you very much for that um, overview. And um, we've gone from the very, very high level, the regional level, down to the household. And thank you very much for um, highlighting how it affects, uh, how water scarcity affects people's lives directly and, um, and, and what the Institute and people are doing to um, alleviate some of this. I'd like to invite um, our three panelists um, to um, open up their videos and we can uh, come to the questions uh, that we that people have been submitting in the Q&A and um, if you have uh, if you have more please do address do them to the Q&A now. Um, so we had um, I'm just going to start from the, the top, but I'm going to initially um, have a question for for each of each of our speakers. Um, something that you, Dr. Majd, had started to answer is these seem very familiar. Essentially, these seem very familiar water insufficiently problems already identified 20 or more years ago. Um, um, but why why is the situation um, not changing? Um, to all our speakers, uh, maybe to say, why does it, this seem such a consistent and intractable um, issue? Maj, um, do you want to say something more before? Uh, for sure, for sure. Um, since I'm a Jordanian and I'm living in Jordan and I work directly with, with water resource management with different ministries and directly uh, at the field with different farmers and different community-based organizations. Um, uh, when I uh, look at water situation, I can't consider um, only one parameter, which is water management. There is a lot of parameters that uh, inside this equation, climate change, population growth, uh, the refugees influx. If we uh, go back um, uh, in years and uh, calculate how many uh, refugees uh, were popped up to Jordan and uh, with the limited water resources, and we need to um, meet the demand and the supply for them. So, so there is a lot of challenges meeting uh, and providing all the people with drinking water uh, resources. While in the past, Jordan, um, let's say, uh, promote the agriculture sector by providing uh, several license to groundwater-based agriculture. But then, there is a lot of political situation that happened around us that affect uh, our uh, water availability per person. And we have to decrease that in order to meet the increased uh, demand. So what I'm trying to say, when we look at water resource management, we can't only look at, at uh, in, in silos. We have to look at the whole equation, everything that's affecting the region from political situation, from economical situation, and the more important thing, and I believe Dr. Hassan will agree with me, is the, the, the social aspect and the economical aspect, because there is a lot of people uh, are um, considering agriculture as the main source for their cultivation, for, for their uh, love, and as mentioned, a lot of water that are pumped in agriculture sector is coming from groundwater resources. So uh, we need to decrease that amount of water, but in the same time, we don't want to uh, close the farms. We don't want to... Um, uh, stop uh, the, the, the economical revenue uh, to the farmers. There is a lot of initiatives that already is implemented in the field. For example, 
providing farmers with treated wastewater instead of uh, fresh water. And the start happened in Jordan Valley. They started in the southern part of Jordan Valley, in central part, and recently they start pumping that in, uh, in, in a limited part in northern part of Jordan Valley. But they will, or the plan for the Ministry of Agriculture is to um, increase the portion of treated wastewater to be used in agriculture under specific criteria in order to save the uh, drinking water. Sorry to take uh, a lot of time, but uh, it's a subject that I uh, can't speak about it for two days. <laughs> Sorry. So, Hussam, do you have anything to add to that? And I'll also um, address another question to you after that. As yes. Well. It's coming for you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Cara. Thank you, Stefan, for this excellent question. So basically, the question is why these narratives have been around for so long and uh, things have not uh, improved and the narratives have not changed. Basically, what I would argue is that uh, the narratives and the discourses really reflect the political economy of the water sector. And the political economy of the water sector has not changed much in the past 20 to 30 years. So we still have uh, a similar allocation of water resources, uh, uh, still large agribusinesses that are strongly benefiting and therefore it is really uh, a challenge. But what has changed in the meantime is the sense of urgency. Uh, so in the meantime, since 20, 30 years ago, compared to 20, 30 years ago, uh, the population incre has increased. Uh, we, the groundwater resources have decreased in terms of quality and quantity. So uh, what has changed is the urgency on the solutions. So the government is really has been pushing uh, and what has changed in the past 30 years is that the DC uh, project is now uh, implemented and operational, and uh, uh, the, 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 the government is really pushing for the decentralization. So it's really seeing this as uh, a national priority. And finally, why has not changed? And the, going back to political economy, it's really about uh, long-term vision and uh, so the sustainability and short-term uh, shocks uh, and the urgency to try to face the short-term. And usually, uh, everywhere in the world, uh, those that are in the government and the politicians are usually more concerned with the provide securing water uh, today and uh, more than considering the sustainability of uh, the water sector. So there's this urgency. And uh, finally, just to conclude, uh, I mean, we are all aware of, uh, uh, of the broader situation, the political context in which uh, Jordan is situated. So uh, while the government, I remember, has always developed a very comprehensive national water strategies, has always been faced with the shocks, external shocks from uh, regional conflicts, uh, uh, refugees and other challenges they had to, to face. And therefore the long-term vision has always had to adapt with, uh, with new challenges. And that's probably why we are still in a water, severe water scarce situation in Jordan. Okay, um, there is a question, maybe it's a quick one to answer about the DC aquifer, um, um, which is essentially from uh, David Wilmson. Um, um, how long, is, if both Jordan and Saudi Arabia are, are drawing from it, um, how, how long, essentially how long is the aquifer expected to last? Maybe. I mean, I'm sure like all, <laughs> also Martin and Majda are excellent on this question, but just maybe to say that I heard many different studies. I mean, uh, the, 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 I mean, from like 100 years to 50 years. So it really depends. Uh, also, 
on the fact that uh, the aquifer is shared as mentioned in the question. So it's also being withdrawn by uh, Saudi Arabia. But the interesting thing, I think, uh, uh, and we also have Raya Stefan connected, who is like one of the uh, experts on groundwater and pension law, uh, is that the agreement in 2015 says that uh, the groundwater resources of the DC needs to be used not for agricultural uses, but uh, for other uses, especially domestic uses. Uh, which, uh, so I think that's an interesting aspect. I'm not sure, I'm not really, uh, I haven't studied the situation in Saudi Arabia, so uh, I'm not sure about how much water is being withdrawn on the other side, but maybe, I mean, both Martin and Much have studied the DC situation, so they might want to add also. Um, perhaps, uh, perhaps we can move to Martin. There are a couple of questions and comments to to Martin and and uh, and Chris Perry has said excellent um, analysis as well. Um, so the, picking up on this issue that farmers are working as well as farming off farm, um, how can they? Uh, what what would happen? Um, could those you interviewed escape from farming? Did they want to? Would their land be absorbed into larger, more productive units? Um, <laughs> if you have any comment on that, there's also a question that you said you would like to answer from Livia Perasino, thank you, um, as well, if you'd like to address either of those questions. Sure, I can, I can address both. I think uh, the starting point is that we uh, might want to uh, discontinue this agrarian romanticism. And I know this is uh, uh, a very harsh uh, message for some, but farmers are not in, a, in this field because they love to, uh, to, to do what they do, but they also have inherited land. And if you speak to farmers across the region, if you ask them, do you want your children to work in agriculture under these conditions? The answer is 90% no, unless you have larger units where they actually make profit, farmers or don't want their children to continue with this field. It's not just a phenomenon in, uh, in the Arab world, it's a phenomenon globally. We don't pay attention to farmers. And you know, we talked about him uh, several times today, Tony Allen mentioned this all the time. We don't pay attention to farmers. We just think that farmers do such an important social and economical environmental job. Yes, they do. But we don't value them. In order to value them, we need to also stop uh, with this cheap food paradigm. Farmers need to get paid more. And this is a larger political economic discourse because it means that uh, people have to pay more for food. Can people pay more for food? Well. I look at uh, Lebanon at the moment, I don't, I don't think so, because uh, they're already very, very much under pressure uh, because of food expenditure. And, and yes, Chris Perry's point, what we need to do is to also look at inheritance law uh, to stop the fragmentation of agricultural uh, units and you know, identify ways that uh, farmers can once again make money on the plot of land they farm in and not just make money but also then they need to be allocated water for which they need to account for so it has to be properly metered and it has to be enforced by uh local and and regional government in in, in the area and a final thing which is often overlooked i think 
a huge opportunity is to look at rangeland management across the region. Rangelands could provide a lot of important protein uh, to consumers. Uh, and, you know, I had a discussion with, uh, actually with uh, some Saudi officials about this uh, a few weeks ago, and they said, well, we don't want to really address this issue because, well, you know, it's too difficult, it's too complex. Also because of inheritance laws and, you know, you don't want to open up the Pandora's box. But in order to solve the water crisis, you need to open the Pandora's box. And this means also to challenge uh, political uh, power plays on the ground. Thank you. Um, would anyone else like to add a comment on, on Martin's response from our panelists? <laughs> okay, we have a question then from Henry Hogger, who also um, is picking up on, I suppose, what do farmers want to do? Um, essentially, it is, is there a politically viable way to encourage farmers to reduce their water use? Um, looking, I think, at uh, Hussam's sort of charts of the amount of water that's used in agriculture relative to um, the percentage of employment. Um, so, if we maybe make this our final question, if, if you have any any comments, either Hussam or Majd on this one. Yes, maybe I can start uh, by saying that uh, it's important to support uh, the rural development uh, and at the same time job creation. Uh, so job creation in rural areas to ensure and to try to prevent this uh, rural to urban migration. Uh, which usually brings uh, uh, urban poverty. Um, and so it's really, I think, the responsibility of the government to try to, I mean, in Jordan, but elsewhere, I think that's really uh, applicable to anywhere, uh, to try to clarify what the economic development trajectories uh, are and should be. And uh, accordingly, to try to develop uh, from ecotourism, for instance, or the industrial sector, um, or a different type of doing agriculture in order to try to maintain people in rural areas and trying to develop these rural areas in a water-wise uh, way. That's what I would, would, would say. Okay. Um, thank you, Hassan. Thank you, Carol. If I might add, okay, uh, in order to the farmers to reduce their water, um, consumption, then they need to uh, increase the water use efficiency at farm level. Talking about this, then I will back to the recommendation that I highlighted at the end of my presentation, we need to aspect the technology aspect and the knowledge aspect and the capacity building. One of the projects that we conducted at Duana Institute, it was related to the future and the challenges for the, for the agricultural sector uh, in Jordan. We interviewed several farmers from the Jordan Valley and we asked them about the terminology itself. Are they aware about the water productivity terminology, about the water use efficiency? Um, some farmers have a good knowledge about that, but unfortunately, uh, some farmers do not know anything about water productivity. They only um, apply water to the crops uh, when they have water and etc. 
so what I'm trying to say, if we need to uh, increase the water use efficiency and reduce the uh, water consumption by farmers and, uh, and decrease the water losses at farm level, then we need to provide the users with the uh, technology and providing this technology, then we need financial aspects and also we need to provide them with the knowledge, with the capacity building, how to use this technology in a friendly way and a good way in order to um, achieve sustainability. No, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think um, we are now past, just past our hour and a half. So it really, um, it really uh, remains for me to thank all our expert speakers here today um, for all of their uh, presentations and for the discussion and their, and their comments. And to say thank you to you for, for joining us and that uh, CBRL runs a number of online, online events. Um, I'll just put in the chat, please check our website. Um, today we've been covering um, water water problems but we cover social sciences and humanities research broadly um, with a program that is um, a program that we also encourage you to get in contact with, with us if there's something that you would like us to cover as well so i think with that um, i'm going to uh, sign off um, for today thank you again for your attendance and um, thank you once again to all our expert speakers. And we continue to think on these topics uh, again, particularly at this time as um, it's not going away and, um, and with COP26 in view. And also um, just to thank you to all of those um, uh, and our small tribute to the work of Tony Allen in this presentation as well. Thank you very much. <laughs>